welcome to our new ARM New Reality podcast series, where we take a look at how mobile technology is changing our lives, as well as all the exciting opportunities it presents for the future. I'm your host, Jeff Wheelwright, a journalist, technology buff, and someone lucky enough to have been chronicling the history of the future for more than four decades. Here with me today are two people very well qualified to talk about the future. The first is Paul Williamson, Vice President and General Manager for Client Business at ARM. And Paul has been effectively living in the future for a number of years. He'll report back on what that's like and what we can expect. Along with him is Jason Silva, a world-renowned TV personality, storyteller, filmmaker, and sought-after keynote speaker and futurist. You may know Jason as the host for five seasons of the Emmy-nominated global hit TV series Brain Games on the National Geographic Channel. And now I'll turn to Paul to tell us a little bit more about his role and how he gets to preview the future every day in his work at ARM. So yeah, sure. Let me tell you a little bit about what I do at ARM. So I'm fortunate enough to lead the part of ARM's uh, business that looks after our key technologies that go into smartphones and uh, what we call client devices. So anything with a screen and a rich user interface um, today. And at ARM, we're developing technology um, that is going to be engineered into those those products and it takes um, many years for what we're nurturing within our business to emerge into the the real world. So we're we're shaping that uh, future as you described it every day in the engineering that we're doing. Jason, do you want to tell us a bit uh, about how you uh, go about being a futurist? Well, when I hosted Brain Games, I became very interested in the disconnect between how we perceive the world and how the world actually is. And and sort of through that lens, I became very interested in the world of technology. Um, I I believe that technology is very much human imagination literalized. So I come at it through this philosophical and, and kind of artistic lens. Like I see our technological innovations as again, the embodiment of our creativity in the world. And so, I think close to a decade now that I first uh, stumbled upon the work of the futurist Ray Kurzweil. And Kurzweil uh, sort of made a name for himself by illustrating the sort of cognitive blind spots that we had when trying to make sense of technological progress. He was one of the guys that made famous this idea that technology uh, changes exponentially or accelerates exponentially, evolves exponentially, and human beings think about technology in a in a sort of linear way. And so there's a disconnect between our linear lenses and the exponential nature of tech. And once I wrap my head around that, I realized, wow, like the sky's the limit really in sort of opening people's minds to what's really happening in, in, in tech. What really landed for me about his thinking was that humans are, are, are wired to see the world and to see change linearly, but that technology has this sort of uncanny quality of, of, of changing or evolving exponentially, you know, the so-called Moore's law. And once I wrap my head around the dissonance between our linear lenses and the exponential nature of technological progress, um, I realized why most people always fail to see the future coming while societies and even companies constantly get sidelined by their linear lenses in an exponential world. And from this, it just, it just opened up uh, a whole rabbit hole for me of, 
of speculation um, and and also an inspiration to try to communicate to people uh, what becomes possible once they understand exponential change. Because with exponential tech, what is needed is exponential literacy, exponential imagination, and exponential creativity. And once once we sort of boot up those qualities in our minds and brains, well, the, the future opens up. It's fascinating, particularly that idea of exponential creativity and being able to see out into a future, as you say, that's nonlinear. Um, Paul, I, I'm thinking that that must form a lot of how you look at particularly at mobile technology uh, and not only how it's transformed our current reality, uh, but the lens through which you look at where that's going to take us in the future. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, as you were speaking, I was, Jason, just thinking about how you know, fortunate we are at ARM. The way we deliver our technology is is as a, a platform where we work with our partners to sort of evolve and innovate on top of that technology. And what we've seen in the smartphone is, you know, a real untapping of some of that exponential nature with the, you know, developers coming yeah. in with access like app stores and so on to really you know push the limits of the technology and fuse those different capabilities in ways that you know we wouldn't be able to sort of map out or imagine with a, a very linear lens so you know it's been really exciting to see how quickly the 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 sort of you know the the engineering that we put in place is sort of mm -hmm embraced and used in ways that we might never have expected. So yeah, absolutely uh, sort of resonate with the thinking around, you know, how that has evolved in the mobile space over the last few years. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I think about the smartphone, uh, I think about it as a, as really a, a stand in for where technology is going. It sort of compresses everything that we think about in terms of high tech or digital tech into this device that fits in our pocket. I remember when I first came across uh, this statement by, by Ray Kurzweil, when he said that the smartphone in our pocket today is a million times cheaper, a million times smaller, yet a thousand times more powerful than what used to be a $60 million supercomputer that was half a building in size 40 years ago. So it's like, you know, 40 years ago, you think about like high tech and you see these giant mainframe machines, you know, warehouse size, supercomputers and so on and so forth. But the fact that like the smartphone in our pocket today exceeds the capacities of those computers now is a testament to ingenuity, but also a very tangible and impactful example of exponential progress. And that, and, and that a young kid in Mexico or Africa with a smartphone in their pocket has better communications technology than a head of state had 25 years ago. So it's like, wow, we not we don't just have supercomputers in our pockets, but we have tools in our pockets that even presidents didn't have 20 years ago. Talk about democratization. Talk about opening the floodgates of access, of connectivity to everyone. And for those that often say, oh, you know, the digital divide and these tools and technologies are only for the rich, you need only point to the smartphone to completely dismantle that argument. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that for me is one of the most exciting things about the potential of the engineering we're doing at ARM is making 
more of those emerging features that we can bring to smartphones, that power that you talked about, that year on year we push to the boundaries, um, available more and more widely. Because um, as you said, in these regions where you know, um, it's just amazing to see the innovation that people can build with access to that platform that, you know, previously would have taken corporations and huge rollouts to create, but it's there as something on which they can build immediately and, and you know, access really uh, rich power that's in the hands of so many people worldwide. It's truly um, inspiring. Yeah, I, I think to that point about um, unexpected uses of technology. Um, I, I remember um, uh, going to a conference a couple of years ago, and there was a guy called Chris Saka there who was one of the early investors in Twitter. Um, and he talked about how um, in the days of the Arab Spring, uh, when uh, the, 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 there was kind of a, a lot of popular movement um, around democratization um, in that part of the world, um, it was in the early days of Twitter. And the Twitter at that time would go down for a few hours uh, periodically uh, to do maintenance because it was that small. Um, and uh, he talked about getting a call from the State Department saying, do not do your maintenance now <laughs> because uh, the, um, the, uh, the people who are relying on that as a force for enabling um, democratization are going to rely on it. And I thought it was just a wonderful example uh, of how um, technology can have unexpected uses for societal change. From the ARM perspective, that's a real reflection we take seriously is the the balance of responsibility that comes with this sort of huge technological power that you're enabling is trying to ensure that we do that responsibly and think about things like, you know, individual security of their data, you know, protection of their privacy, um, and ensuring that while they get access to that technology, they're also protected and, and that it is reliable and is something that they can depend upon to be able to build these, you know, fantastic new experiences that we're, that we're coming to take for granted. I was just going to say, um, building on that example of, uh, of like Twitter's unexpected role in the Arab Spring, um, my mother, who uh, is a teacher, she was living in, in Kenya for many years. And one of the sort of anecdotal points that she mentioned to me is that in Kenya, you know, a street, a street vendor selling, selling fresh produce or selling fruit, uh, you can pay them using mobile payments and their simple cell phones and, and sort of early smartphones that they have uh, are, work to receive payment electronically. So these are people that, you know, live in places with sometimes limited infrastructure, and yet now they can do electronic transactions based on the smartphones that they carry. In places yeah, like this. I, I find it fascinating to see how local regions adapt the technology to their needs. Um, exactly. There's a, there's a company called uh, What Three Words. I'm not sure if you've come across them who have emerged to sort of solve the problem that we don't have addresses in the world. So to make these digital systems with delivery or services in regions of the world where you, know, you don't have these regular block street addresses and codes and postal codes and district codes, um, you know, what three words allows you to identify anywhere on the planet with a simple three um, word uh, combination. And, um, you know, something I could never have envisaged would be needed, but, but it, you know, it, it sort of layers onto the smartphone environment to allow you to deliver something globally anywhere, which is, uh, you know, fascinating to see those innovations. 
Yeah, that that sounds a lot uh, like science fiction. In fact, Paul, I know you recently wrote a piece for Arm's Blueprint blog where you talked about which science fiction movies might come closest to science future. Can you tell me a bit more about how you came up with that way of framing how we look at the future? Yeah, I will, of course. And I'd be really interested to get Jason's take on this. I mean, um, the the two futures I re referred to were the uh, the sort of digitally immersive future, which is the, the future that's painted out in Ready Player One of where we engage with technology by sort of, um, you know, putting on a headset and getting into a different world and sort of experiencing things that are, you know, today a complete fantasy to us, but in a very real and tangible way. So meeting new people, you know, experiencing, you know, art and music in, in completely different ways, um, you know, and, you know, it, but it's a very sort of physically immersive um, sort of connection with the technology. Mm -hmm. um, the, the other sort of one that I referred to in the blog was uh, the sort of invisible technology platform, which is more um, akin to the sci-fi movie Her, um, where, you know, you have a small hearable device in your ear or, you know, in other scenarios, you might have a contact lens in your eye with integrated display, but you're augmenting the real world with additional data and information that sort of uh, supports your daily life and gives you that extra context and and, and data seamlessly. So uh, a sort of more augmented, uh, invisible integration of the technology into our lives. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to think about how those two are playing out together. Um, and we're seeing real early examples of both of them today. But but trying to map, you know, how that will play out is is interesting to me. Yeah, I am. Um... I read your article and, and I liked your your two examples. I, I remember when I watched the film Her, I told myself, "Wow, that can't come soon enough." To be honest, um, <laughs> the the idea of, of 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 a Siri type virtual assistant eventually becoming a movie starlet in your ear sounded pretty good, um, but really the the role of 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 an AI that is unobstruse, like, like that just sort of expands your capacities, augments your capacities, assists you in all of these ways so that you can kind of offload a lot of your cognitive load to these AI uh, services, so to speak, or this AI agent, um, but they're also invisible. So mm -hmm. you kind of go through your everyday life, but then there is this like invisible layer of intelligence that's just helping you. And, and I imagine in the her like scenario that these, that these virtual assistants or these AIs will be interacting with elements of the internet of things. So once you deploy sort of intelligent sensors and miniature sensors into everyday objects all around the world, as uh, as Wired Magazine co-founder Kevin Kelly calls it, you, you cognitize the world in the same way we electrified it with electricity. So once you have a world that has been effectively cognitized and then you have this like AI layer virtual assistant that is running around with you everywhere, but also interacting with this smart world and this smart grid. Um, essentially, we start moving into a domain where the world or the distinction between us and our world kind of disappears. And the world starts to feel more and more like just an extension of our tastes and preferences. Um, and in a, in a kind of uh, magical or enchanted way, it sort of reanimates the world. It's sort of a, or a return to our pre-industrial sort of, sort of animistic relationship with, with, with the environment where everything is alive. 
the world is full of agency. The world yeah. gives us constant feedback and, um, and just how magical that, that sounded. Um, a, a, another film, well, you know, when I imagine, you know, like ready player one, I also think of the matrix. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, even, even though the matrix was dystopian in its presentation, the idea of a virtual reality that is indistinguishable from this one, I think actually is, is the Holy grail because, you know, as we've learned with, with, with something like, uh, the current, the current situation in the world with this pandemic, um, you know, if we had fully immersive virtual reality, these zoom calls, we wouldn't be complaining about as often, you know, <laughs> you know we'd all be hanging out in this, uh, virtual world, uh, where, where we'd be safe and, and we'd have everything that we want from the physical world minus its risks. So, yeah. You Absolutely. Know, I mean, some yeah. some of those greatest experiences that I've missed in the the sort of the current situation we find ourselves. Um, you know, you can try them in virtual reality today, but there's clearly that they could clear that they could be so much more. I mean, I, I did a, a tour of um, Notre Dame Cathedral in um, an Oculus headset the other day, and it was spectacular. But um, you know, it just sort of touches the sort of early sort of stages of this technology and it's yeah. clear that certainly for human interaction um it today is really lacking but yes. you know there's certainly a, a lot that it could you know with the evolution of improved sensors face tracking right. all these things that we can build with using machine learning and, and neural network technology within the sort of the smartphone platform um, yes. to be able to support that we're going to be able to make that a much more sort of real and tangible human interaction i think but within those virtual environments which would be really exciting i think you raise a really yeah. good point in terms of how you bring all of those things together and and the interdependence of both human and technical evolution and innovation um, I, I think talking about that idea of looking at the future exponentially uh, that we we talked about a little earlier uh, one of the other points you made in the blog i I think was is particularly um, worth talking about where you said uh, the industry is also searching for the elusive device that's the perfect mix of a trendy and lightweight form factor that consumers will want to wear regularly while being able to hold enough power and performance. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you see those coming together in the, the, the kind of short to medium term, because people like a lot of the ideas that we're, we're talking about, but trying to get from there to, okay, well, how is that delivered? How how can that be relevant to my life other than something I'm doing on my phone? Yeah, that's that's really the challenge that we face in our engineering every day at ARM is trying to achieve more every year in that exponential curve within mm. the same sort of power envelope and form factor that we had the year before. And, you know, you, you can see it that, you know, the smartphone to some extent hasn't changed a lot in its weight and size in our hand, yet its performance and its capabilities has increased immeasurably. And, yeah. um, that's part of what we do day in, day out, but pushing it to the new form factors is an interesting challenge. We're going to have to sort of partition out the technology a little differently, and we're going to see a sort of, uh, you know, a need to sort of innovate with our partners on not just the sort of 
the performance of that base hardware, but also some of the dedicated acceleration that's going to be needed into these platforms, you know, the compression and transmission of the data more efficiently around the system to allow you to wear something that is much lighter weight, but still have access to that supercomputer power in your pocket. Um, So we will see a bit of a breakup of the uh, compute footprint between the wearable and, you know, still needing some form of, um, you know, compute element, which you carry, whether that be the smartphone or, or a dedicated supporting one, so that you really can wear that that thing comfortably and seamlessly uh, throughout the day. Um, but it, it is a real challenge. Um, I think it's also interesting to see how, you know, the as you point out, the human interaction and the cultural acceptance of these technologies evolves, um, you know, uh, us videoing the world around us um, constantly, you know, the, the video sensor that you have multiple of in the back of your smartphone is such a powerful way for a computer to interact with the world and to access mm-hmm. data. Um, but it has social implications to be right. you know, filming constantly. And yeah. it's also going to sort of shape our conscious behavior as well. So I think, you know, there's there's a lot we're driving on the technology, but we've got to be really conscious about, you know, how we expose that data within the system and how do we keep it secure and build trust as well. So there's a lot for us to think about in shaping that architecture to suit those form factors, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I hear you talking about uh, sort of the decoupling of the, maybe the computation uh, from the smartphone device in our pockets and then adding these accessories. You know, I, what comes to mind obviously is whether it's uh, digital contact lenses that you wear that interface directly with the smartphone um, or even just uh, some kind of eyewear device that, that, that becomes that bridge between the digital and the real, some kind of augmented reality interface that just kind of overlays a digital grid upon the world, upon your field of vision. Um, and of course, inter- interfaces are directly with maybe the computational device in your pocket. But what I had never thought of before is that those lenses uh, in order to really map the terrain and impose a digital grid upon the terrain, we'll have to be scanning the terrain. So there'll be like a constant lens camera, essentially mapping everything in your field of vision. So everybody that you interact with um, is going to become acutely aware that they are being mapped and being scanned and being filmed. So it definitely raises a lot of question about how human behavior will have to uh, adapt to that. Yeah. At the same time, I have no doubt that we will find a way and that there will be an adaptation and, and a kind of uh, implicit social negotiation. Um, because one of the things that we've seen with all these disruptive technologies is that the speed at which they go mainstream is also sp- speeding up exponentially. Right. Like I, I think I remember seeing this this map that showed, you know, how how many decades did it take before, you know, the radio was ubiquitous? How long did it take before television was ubiquitous? How long did it take before the smartphone was ubiquitous? How long did it take before Facebook was ubiquitous? And, and it just keeps speeding up. The rate of yeah, adoption. I, I think it, it's also um, how long does it take for it to become more personal? I, I'm, I'm thinking in the context of the kind of future we're talking about, there's a lot of information that we allow our devices to know about us. Um, and, and it's information yeah. that could make your experience much more personal. Yeah. Well, it makes me think that in the future, the currency of trust is going to be you know, as important as, as our financial bottom line. 
um, because for sure, the more of our sort of personal information we we surrender to the self-organizing system, the richer our experience can potentially be. And to an extent, you know, it, it makes me think about, you know, again, the relationship between us and our technology and whether we think that we are separate from our technology. There are these guys, David Chalmers and Andy Clark, they're cognitive philosophers, and, and they wrote a famous paper called the Extended Mind Thesis. And, and their argument is that the, the human mind as it exists today, it, 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 yes, certainly it, it sort of starts with the brain, but the, but the mind really is what emerges in feedback loops between brains, tools, and environments. And so they describe our tools and technologies as sort of non-biological props and scaffoldings of the cognitive apparatus, but that it all, that the mind is now distributed between biological and non-biological parts. Now, that's amazing to think about it. It requires a whole cognitive shift in how we see ourselves, you know, that we are inseparable from our tools, technologies, devices, and environments. However, um, the question that is raised is, well, how are these tools, technologies, and environments being designed? Are they being designed to sort of steward us into some kind of uh, boring complacency or are they designed to, you know, leverage our creativity? You know, I mean, how Kevin Kelly yeah. famously says how, how impoverished humanity would have been if we didn't have the technology of the oil painting in time for Van Gogh, or if we yeah. didn't have the technology of the musical instrument in time for Beethoven. But what we also know is that certain tools and technologies can be used for manipulation. We've seen disinformation, fake news on social media, for example. So, Again, I think it has to do with trust. It has to do with integrity. It's going to have to require an up-leveling in the relationship, I think, between consumers and those that create these tools and technologies. Yeah, and I, I totally sort of can see how this plays out, but I also um, thankfully have a, a perspective on this that gives me some confidence in that yeah. you know, the, the biggest innovations that we drive at arm into the smartphone over the next sort of three to five years, the unseen innovations that that may not sort of be immediately visible to the user are going to be around increasing the security of the platform so that you really can, you know, process data on these platforms without anybody else being able to see it, not even the operating system itself. Um, so things can truly be secured and private. And also as we're bringing more machine learning into the capabilities into the platform, you know, 100 times faster year on year performance in, in some generations of machine learning, we're allowing these devices to learn about us locally, rather than have to send all of the data remotely to perform that. So we can both keep it secure and localized, but also mm. still allow it to adapt, as you described to us, so that yeah. it's personalized. So yeah. you know, th those are some of the key technologies that, that are going to come in that will be largely unseen, but but give me confidence that we will navigate our way through um, some of those key challenges that you just sort of laid out, uh, the, yeah. the, the technologies emerging. Yeah, I think yeah. that's going to be really important as well as you start getting into extended reality or XR and then uh, how that's implemented uh, with augmented reality and uh, virtual reality. Um, even in the workplace where you would have concerns about um, safety, around privacy, um, and what kind of information you want um, to be shared and that that um, members of the workforce would want to share with their employer. Um, so I I'm wondering how you see 
those form factors and the special considerations that you have to have in design and development and support for those? Yeah, so um, I think uh, the principles are common across most of the uh, user environments, whether it be workplace or personal life. Um, and, you know, we, in looking at that core technology, you know, we're, we're looking right into the sort of uh, effectively the plumbing, if you like, of the system to look at where data is transacted and how it can be authenticated and how its access to it can be uh, managed and controlled at the the deepest levels of the system. Um, And it does allow for us to be able to then, um, you know, trust that data that is processed has come from a particular sensor or a particular part of the system and that it's only accessible to um, applications or pieces of code that have permission to access that data. And that's been uh, a real challenge to implement. But by going into the sort of roots of the architecture of the smartphone, we're able to enforce those policies and set them up so that, you know, um, ecosystems like uh, operating system vendors and partners like application vendors can come in and then make use of those hooks to bring those protections to reality in whatever market um, the technology is deployed. So I think it gives us just as much hope for protection in you know commercial use cases or safety in robotics and and in um, you know other use cases as well where you need to protect and keep that code secure um, as and the data secure as it does in in our personal lives as well. So yeah, it's a it's a good point. Yeah, and I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit more, Paul, about how you see um, future technology releases um, uh, from ARM um, enabling all of that. Uh, Maybe give us a kind of a a sneak peek. Uh, I I know um, late last year you you, um, announced the the total compute approach, um, and uh, I'm wondering if you can kind of give us a look under the covers and tell us maybe a a little bit more uh, about where you where you see things going. You know, at ARM, um, as you said, we, we've sort of talked a little bit about the concept of total compute. And this is a sort of um, a recognition that the reality of computers changing a little. Um, in the past, people might have had a consciousness of compute around, you know, the raw benchmark on the CPU um, as a measure of the performance. But in reality, our systems in our smartphones are getting so much more complex. You know, the influence of the GPU or the execution of workloads like neural networks in machine learning are becoming increasingly important or computer vision and signal processing around the images that we capture. Um, So compute performance is about much more, and it's about us co-optimizing the different elements of the compute system in your smartphone to make them as effective as possible at delivering the very best performance within the power envelope and that making that still something that is, you know, portable and and something that has a a tangible and, and, you know, useful user interface. So as we push forward, we're pushing forward not just on the CPU, but the other elements of the system as well um, to really drive that improvement. And that allows us to do Uh, to look at the problem a little differently around system-wide performance on some of these key and emerging workloads like machine learning um, to give you know, very much more significant uplift than you might get just by increases in clock rates or, you know, um, instructions per second that might have been sort of measurements of raw compute performance in the past. So we're looking at 
total system performance to really um, stretch what's possible with some of these new um, workloads and new new development paradigms. So it's a more holistic approach where, where you're kind of looking across uh, IP security the, and the, the software and tools that are going to enable uh, different device experiences. Yeah. And then the extra key element that goes with it is making all of that accessible to developers. Because, um, you know, as we started in this, the discussion around the innovation that others bring um, is really key to us in the way we work at ARM and having that sort of platform where people can access that capability and access it widely and, and, and that it's really tangibly available to the developer is the other key element of the way we think about total compute. So if we make you know, machine learning performance at the system level improve. How do we make sure every ounce of that performance is available to an app developer? How do we make it easy for them to, you know, have simple APIs so that they can make full use of it and have the right tools so they can see how the system performs when they they develop their new, um, you know, their new dream, if you like, on the platform. So, um, you know, developer access and, and partnership around these technologies is really key if we're going to make the uh, step changes that we'd like to in the performance. As we wrap up and 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 try and provide some uh, useful um, guidance to people as they're, they're um, looking at where all this is going to take them and the difference they can make in their lives, um, can you give me a, a couple of things that you think people should uh, look out for uh, in the next couple of years in terms of mobile technology and, and what it can do for them? So I, th- I think um, as we look to the next couple of years uh, from my perspective at ARM, I think um, we're going to see the story of security grow in strength and I think um, see that become something that becomes an increasingly defining part of the platforms which we we put into our hands. So, um, you know, whether that will transcend to be something that is really visible to the user is yet to be seen, but it's definitely a, a key element of the technology that's going to deliver in the next couple of years. Uh, and the other element that we're going to see is just that increasing strength of the application developer in being able to deploy these experiences. So, um, you know, harness the power and the use of technologies like machine learning that is there within the devices um, and see some really innovative and interesting application developments in software that build on those capabilities that are being delivered by the ARM partnership. Some of the things that I want to see in the future uh, is an increasing feeling of kind of contextualization, you know, they talk about contextual computing. I want, you know, I want my digital AI assistant, you know, running on my smartphone to be, to engage me in much more fluid conversation and to have a much more contextual understanding of my daily activities so that I can ask for help in a way that feels less cumbersome and more fluid. So, so I envision mobile technology uh, facilitating fluidity, particularly with, with these digital assistants or the on-demand economy, or even, you know, even if I'm like navigating and, you know, and, uh, and I'm engaging with, with Google maps or something, and, you know, we're on our way to a destination, you know, I, I want the digital assistant to be able to tell me, I'm like, Hey, listen, find a restaurant on the way to where we're going, make sure it's got good reviews and that it's got a healthy menu. You know, I want to be able to make a request like that and have the digital AI do the entire contextual search and find something 
that it exactly addresses what I've asked for, you know? And so when I say that contextual computing and fluidity, because I basically want the best, you know, they say the best technology is the technology that gets out of the way. And what I mean by that is that it facilitates or expands your your field of potentiality, right? Like it, it augments what you can do, but it doesn't cause any friction. It doesn't get in the way. It, there's no start and stop. There's just flow and fluidity. So that's what I want to see more of in mobile tech, flow and fluidity. That um, sounds like a great list. Uh, and I'm very excited for the future. And uh, I want to thank you both uh, again for giving us a glimpse of it and helping us explore what we might see. Thank you all for listening. 